brought to you by Trinity School for Ministry, an evangelical seminary in the Anglican tradition. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Trinity School for Ministry podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Josh Sullivan, and today we have what I would definitely call a change of pace from the content we usually put out for our archived recordings, uh, because today we are listening to the introductory lecture uh, from Mary M. McGregor's Janterm series uh, from 2003, and that was titled Hungry Hearts, A Fresh Look at Equipping Women for Ministry. Now, I make the comment that this is a different kind of content that we usually put out, and that's because it's not quite the academic style of lecturing. Um, At certain times throughout the lecture, Mary has inserted times for specifically for discussion on questions, and after the last set of uh, discussions, she actually calls on people from the audience to uh, relay some of the things they were talking about. And folks, this is the first time I have seen in our lectures someone bringing a mic to people in the audience with comments. Um, Never been seen before (laughs) from the archive tape lectures. So I was extremely pleased about that. So all that to say, we hope that you are encouraged by this talk. It is themed heavily around the importance of relationships in the body of Christ and highlights our need for each other. Uh, instead of an institution, I suppose. So enjoy. Scary thing. And uh, some of you brought friends with you. Some of you are here alone. And you don't know anybody else here. But this needs to be a safe place. This is a place that God's going to use this time. And in order to do that, you have to reveal yourself. You will be loved when you do. Because it's my expectation that every one of you will reveal the love of Jesus Christ to each other when we open up and share our hearts. So please immerse yourself in today. Open up and reveal yourself. Respect each other because we're going to be vulnerable. And respecting each other means listening. We're not here to, to uh, top each other's stories. I don't think any of you all would do that. But sometimes in the course of conversation, someone has a great story and you've got one right behind it that's just a little bit more interesting. <laughs> Let's try not to do that. Let's try not to do that. Let's listen to each other. And of course, we're going to have different stories. You're going to have opportunities to reveal all kinds of stories. And I'm going to, since I'm center stage, I'm going to tell lots of stories too on myself and reveal some of my own vulnerability and major shortcomings. So let's make sure that we respect that. And then the hardest thing I'm going to ask you to do, and this is going to be really hard. When we take breaks, and we will have a a break in each morning, afternoon, morning session, afternoon session, when you come back from lunch, both today and tomorrow, I'm going to ask you to sit in a different place. Whoa, whoa, it's about this. For 57 years, it had been Mrs. Grumbling Seaton Church, and there they found her another victim of putrefaction. We are so comfortable in our routines. We are so comfortable in our churches. We have favorite places. I know you do. I do too. And the, when I started getting into congregational development and, and learning what it meant to be a leader, I realized it was all about change. And I'm going to talk a lot about change. 
and hopefully you'll learn some things about change. But it's very, very hard for us because we don't want to change. It's just too comfortable, too predictable uh, not to do that. So in part of this learning experience will be when you come back from a break, sit somewhere else, okay? I will also instruct you when we do, we will do a lot of the uh, sharing in here and sometimes it'll just be two people sharing. So you'll be turning somebody to somebody next to you. If that is the case, I will often tell you, do not talk to someone you've talked to before. This is not about, you know, just talking with your best friend here or someone who came with you or someone you're getting to know. I really want you all to get to know each other in these two days and share the wealth of life experience that you have with each other. So in these two days together, let's learn from each other. Let's laugh out loud and have fun. Let's seriously contemplate what God is asking us to do, what he's telling us, what he is revealing to us in the course of these two days. Let us respect each other as sisters in Christ because that is indeed what we are. So let's go. Let's ask God's blessing on our time together. I'd like to open with a prayer. Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, I thank you for the immense privilege of being able to be with these precious sisters so we can gather together to love and support each other, but to know more than anything that you love us and you have fullness and purpose for our lives And you so badly want us to live into you, to know what you call us to do, both individually and in community. Bless this time together. Bless each person present. And Lord, above all, I ask that you use me as an instrument of your will. Have me say only those things you would have me say. These things we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. If you will open your folder, you will find the first sheet right off the bat. I'm going to have you do something. It's called entrance stories. We all have stories. Every one of us. Life is about our life story. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to think back on a time, the time in your life, when you feel like you really began to know Christ in a very personal and meaningful way. Now you might be saying, I have always known Christ all my life. And if that's the case, and that was probably the year you were born, or it might've been six months ago, or somewhere in between, or perhaps you've had this roller coaster of there were times when you thought you did, and then you had a deep valley of time that you fell away from God, and then you came back. It really doesn't matter, but pick one of those peak times when you said, at this point in my life, I really began to know Christ. Now, I literally want you to put a year on it. Was it 1976, 1998, 2001? Whatever year it was, I want you to put that year down. 
in that first line. So think about that for a minute. What year might that have been? All right, now let's think about that time frame in your life. During that time, there was a woman. There was a woman. She might have even been your mother. She might have been a teacher. She might have been a Sunday school teacher. She might have been an older woman at your church. She might have been a neighbor, a friend, an aunt who really reflected the love of Jesus Christ to you. This is a woman that when you looked at her, you thought, wow, she taught you things, perhaps by the way she acted, the things she said, the way she mentored you. Why don't you think about that woman? Now, you don't have to name her, but you have to know who she is in your head. Now, I want you to spend a couple of minutes thinking about her and saying, what were the qualities and the characteristics, the behaviors of that woman that deeply impacted me? Where I began to know Christ a little better because I knew her. What did she do? How did she behave? How would you describe her in a list of adjectives? So think about who she is and think about those things I'm going to give you about two minutes now, and there's an empty space on your sheet, and I want you to write those words down. You don't, don't write sentences. Just say, these were the characteristics and the behaviors. Just list some words and phrases. Okay. <clears throat> now, you can turn to anybody you want to this first time. <laughs> and I want you to talk about this woman with the person you turn to. I want you to tell the other person all about her. I want you to tell her the things that you wrote down, those reasons why she impacted you and your Christian formation, and just share your story about that woman, what she did. And then I want you to let that other person share her story about a woman. And you all have a total of 10 minutes. So you have five minutes each, and I will call time, okay? Uh, so let's go ahead and do this. Let's turn to each other and share those stories. Okay, let's wind down the conversations. That was fun remembering, wasn't it? It's just really special women. I want you to share with me some of those behaviors, characteristics, and qualities, those Women, just uh, say the words out loud. I'm going to fill this entire board, and when it's finished, then we're finished, okay? But let's share some. What were some of those characteristics and behaviors? Gentle. What else? Caring. What else? Purposeful in being a Christian. What else? Thoughtful. Pardon? Say it again. Prayerful. Prayer warrior. Servant. What else? Great expectations. Spiritually sound. Nurturing. Loving. What else? Available. Accepting. 
<laughs> Not perfect. What else? Pardon? Bold. This Texan didn't understand your accent. <laughs> okay, what else? Grace filled. Gifted. I think I put, li- I guess I didn't, lis- listener. What else? Encouraging. And I think I heard kind. Joyful. Pardon? Content. What else? Unashamed. Faithful. Prayed with authority. Mm. What else? Transparent. Honest. Loves the word. Okay. Helped find answers for you. Full assurance of faith. Assurance of faith. What else? Surrender. Full of laughter. Mm. Truth teller. What else? With wise, what else? Sought people out. Intelligent. Mm. Lived into calling. Humble. Quiet dignity. Patient. What else? Hope bearer. Hope bearer. What else? Pardon? Committed. What else? Non judgmental. Mm. Thankful. We're getting down the bottom here. What else? A couple more. Generous. And one or two more. Inviting. Inviting. One more. Conveyed boundaried love. All right, I want you to look at these things. We could have gone on a long time. That's why I just wanted to fill one board. All right. This person to you was gentle, caring, purposeful in being a Christian, thoughtful, was a prayer warrior, a servant, a a person that had great expectations, spiritually sound, a nurturing, loving person, a person who was available and accepting, a person who was not perfect, but bold, grace-filled, gifted. She was a listener. She was an encourager. She was kind. 
She was joyful, content, unashamed, faithful. She prayed with authority. She was transparent and honest. Uh, she loved the Word of God, helped find answers for you. Full of, she was full of assurance of the faith. She surrendered. She was full of laughter. She was a truth teller. She was wise. She sought people out. She was intelligent. She lived into her sense of call. She was humble. She had a quiet dignity. She was patient. She was a hope bearer. She was committed. She was non-judgmental. She was thankful. She was generous. She was inviting. And she conveyed boundary love. When we look at these characteristics and these behaviors, other than this one, <laughs> sounds like Jesus. Think about it. This is a woman who reflected the love of Jesus Christ to you. That is a powerful thing. How in tune are we as individual women with the power that we have to influence other people for the sake of Jesus Christ. Do you know how much power you have? You have tremendous power. These women today, many of them might be very, very surprised to hear how influential they were in your life. But God put them in your life to help shape you, to help form you, and they did. You can do the same. We are called as sisters in Christ to do this for each other. Now, we can do this for guys too. But we have a particular wonderful gift from God, and that is sisterhood, if we will take advantage of it. If we will recognize that it's a wonderful opportunity to grow in relationships with other people, to reflect the love of Jesus Christ one to the other and to absolutely impact other people's lives. So I just wanted to bring that to your attention because often we, we lose sight of what we can do, what we're capable of doing, what we're able to do. Women have a way of not having much confidence in themselves are not thinking very highly of what it is they're able to accomplish. Well, the reality is if you do nothing else in your life but this, you have fulfilled a full life. If you have impacted other people by reflecting the love of Jesus Christ. So don't forget that. And that's what I wanted you to realize. I want to tell you a little bit more about myself and know why I'm this crazy person is here today, standing before you. I am a person who has come from um, eight generations of Anglicans and Episcopalians. I got off the boat in Boston in the early 1700s, way back, back, way, way, way back, on my father's side. And my father was an Episcopal priest. He has since died, died 10 years ago. My great-grandfather was an Episcopal priest, and I often have said to myself, and I thought, how many, how many of you all in this room are what are termed cradle Episcopalians who were born into the denomination? There are some of you. Well, <clears throat> when I thought of myself as a cradle Episcopalian, I thought one day, I thought, no, Mary, you're, you're really more than that. Uh, you are uh, a DNA Episcopalian. <laughs> 
It is in my blood. It runs liturgically purple. It really, really does. It really, really does. I've had great fortune of being in the community of the church my whole life. I'm also a person who was born knowing God. That doesn't mean there weren't periods in my life when I let God sit in the back seat. <laughs> there were some significant periods when I was driving and I was driving in the wrong direction. But I've known God all my life and it's been an immense gift to me and helped shape me and form me and God purposed me to have come in this family uh, that had the community that surrounded them. I've been a member of five different congregations, which has given me a lot of perspective on the church. I grew up in a church, my dad's church. My dad stayed at the same church for 31 years in Houston. That was a very unusual thing. So I never had to move around a lot like PKs often have to do. And this was a church that was really into renewal. We're talking, my grown up years was the 50s and 60s. Really into renewal and we had folk masses and all these sorts of things, lots of guitars and things going on. And I thought all Episcopal churches were like that. Now this was, <laughs> this was 30 years ago, 40 years ago, you know? And uh, that, because that was just normal for me. Uh, and uh, I went to University of Texas and I met my future husband there. I was sharing with Catherine this morning that I met him when I was 18 years old and we were married by the time I was 20. Then I spent the next four years wondering why I married him. You know, just young and naive and full of life and hope. And, but we have been married 33 years, and I know now why I married this man. Love him with all my heart. But we went on. We moved from Texas. My husband drugged me where he went to graduate school over to LSU, Louisiana State University. And at LSU, they're the oldest freestanding Episcopal church on a college campus in America. And that's St. Albans, this wonderful place. And it was a place of great intellectual engagement and experimentation. And there weren't a whole lot of us there because there never are a whole lot of Episcopalians in any one place. But we would gather and on Sunday night was when we did our thing because students slept in Sunday morning, you know, they never came to church. But we'd gather on Sunday night and the uh, chaplain there would have us gather around the altar. We'd come sit around the altar and, and share about the sermon. He'd do a little sermon. We'd talk about the sermon. And that was, that was really good because I had married a Unitarian, an agnostic Unitarian at that. Now, the good thing was that I thought when I, I, I'll tell you, when I met Bob, and I thought, oh, my, literally, oh, my God, what is my father going to say? Because my father had told me when I was growing up, Mary, be careful. Don't date Roman Catholic boys because you're totally going to have to change, you know. And you don't want to marry Jewish boys because, you know, that just won't work. And, and when I met Bob, I thought, Dad, you never told me I couldn't marry an agnostic Unitarian. <laughs> so I remember the time that uh, Bob, Bob and I were very young, very naive, and I mean, knew each other three months, and he wanted to marry me. I mean, you know, we were young. I said, well, you're going to have to talk to my father. And so he came to my house in Houston, and I remember they went into the den, and they shut the door. And I was just sitting there praying, oh, Lord, please, you know, what's going on in there? Because I just knew my dad was giving him grief about his faith. And they came out, big smiles on their face. Everything was cool. My father told me later, he said, I knew that young man had the potential to come around one day. <laughs> and so I want to bless this marriage, and he did. 
Um, so that's a little history about that. But in, uh, at LSU also, we used to, I remember a time, this place was so creative that on one New Year's Eve, we spent, New Year's Eve fell on a Sunday night. So we had church at like 1130 that night. And instead of having the wine for the Eucharist, we had a bottle of champagne and we popped the bottle at the altar. You know, I mean, it was just. <laughs> so here's my husband. This is his first exposure to the Episcopal Church was LSU. <laughs> and he's thinking, this isn't so bad. You know, <laughs> they do some interesting things here. Okay, then my husband got his doctorate and we moved on to Birmingham, Alabama. Well, I thought, surely I'll find a church in Birmingham, Alabama. There are probably 20 Episcopal churches there that I could like. I think I visited every one of them. There wasn't a guitar in any of those 20 churches in Birmingham. And I thought, oh my gosh, well, they're all the same. So I might as well, there was literally one on the street that we lived. So I said, let's just join the one down the street because they're all like anyway. And I will tell you a story a little bit later about how that congregation truly impacted me. But this was a group that was very traditional and we were there at the time of the new old prayer book, you know, when it came in in the late 70s, those of you who were around then. And when those people were forced to share the peace, I, I'll never forget it. It was kind of like, the peace of the Lord be always with you, you know, if they turned to shake a hand, you know. So that was the kind of congregation. And uh. So then we moved from that congregation to Galveston. Well, Galveston's very old, very old city. And we joined Trinity Episcopal Church. Now, this is the church that sat 500 people. Galveston only has 50,000 people. So, you know, it's always half empty on Sunday. But it's this monster church built in 1857 with a Tiffany window over the altar that, had, that was literally 20 feet high, 15 feet across. Tiffany, gorgeous. Put in after the great storm in 1900. With Jesus sitting on the throne of heaven, with angels behind him and children at his feet. And the top of this window was gold glass and it faced west. So in any given day when the sun was going down and the sun came through that window, Jesus, his robes were opalescent glass. So he looked like he was on fire. They were like fiery opals. It's the, I think it is the most exquisite window in the world. And this was a huge cavernous church, and I ended up working at that church part-time. And I remember going down the afternoons, sitting in that dark nave, and, just, and there were gorgeous stained glass windows on the side of that church, huge, huge glass, just saying, Lord, heaven must be like this. You know, and have one of those $400,000 organs. <laughs> you know, with a master organist, and he used to just play, and I'd sit in there and think, this is heaven, this is just heaven, looking at you and just relishing in that. All right, then my husband got a new job closer to Houston. So we moved 30 miles up the road, and I joined St. Christopher Episcopal Church. Well, I mean, that's the church I'm currently a member of. Let me tell you about St. Christopher Church. St. Christopher Church is located on the south shore of Clear Lake. On the north shore is NASA, uh, the Space Center. So we had a lot of members who were engineers, worked for NASA, aerospace engineers. Well, I want you to envision this. This church was founded in 1959, about the same time that NASA was founded. They were bringing engineers in to start this program. First or second vestry meeting, aerospace engineers sitting around a vestry table. <laughs> All of them with white short sleeve shirts on, pocket protectors, horn rim glasses. <laughs> going, we got to build a church. 
We don't need an architect. We can do it ourselves. <laughs> they did. They built it themselves. And do you know what my church looks like? And this is the honest truth. It looks like an airplane hangar. <laughs> it is like, you know, it's like, a, I don't know, we call them butler buildings down in Texas, but you know, metal frame kind of buildings. <clears throat> and then they proceeded to put homemade stained glass in the windows, you know. I want to ask you, who here has a plastic altar? We have a plastic <laughs> altar. I mean, we are the epitome of tacky. And I have often said that we are upholding a 45-year tradition in the Diocese of Texas of being the ugliest church <laughs> in the Diocese of Texas. Now, the first time I went to St. Christopher, I remember I opened those wooden doors and I looked in and I said, Lord, I know you're here, but do I have to look? <laughs> I, was, I really, coming from this heavenly, gorgeous environs to this ordinary, tacky place, it was a really good lesson for me. Because about that time, and I now, I've been there now about 14 years, it really drove home the point that the church is not the building. The church is not the trappings. The church is the people of God. I wish, you know, God would do us a great favor if bolts of lightning come down and strike a lot of our buildings, we'd burn to the ground. And then we'd really realize what we value. We need to value each other because that's what it all is all about. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't meet in places that inspire us to worship Almighty God. Of course, that's always nice, but it's really about the people. So that's a little bit of my background. And as Catherine told you, I do work for the Diocese of Texas. And one thing a long time ago when I was at Trinity, oh, I want to back up a little bit. When I was at All Saints in Birmingham, I was new to Birmingham. I didn't have many friends. I was a young woman. I was in 25, uh, not many friends. And I remember getting a phone call one day. And it was from a woman at church, and she said, Mary, and I said, she introduced herself. She said, I want to invite you to come to a women's group. We've got this young women's group, a lot of women about your age, um, and I will pick you up and I'll take you. I remember standing there on the phone going, is there any excuse I can make not to go to this? I really didn't think I needed this. I'm busy. I was working full time. And I thought, you know, I, do I really want to do this? God has such a wonderful sense of humor. I couldn't think of an excuse. And I thought, well, I'll go this one time. Well, this woman came and she picked me up and took me to this lady's house. And this lady opened the door and she's just full, vibrant and joyful and welcomed me. And she asked me my name and she said, where do you live? And I said, I live on Claremont in Homewood. And she said, oh, you do? I used to live on Claremont in Homewood. What's your address? I said, 413. She said, you did? That was my house. <laughs> now, you know, God is full of God incidences in our lives. If we will only open our eyes and realize how God does wonderful, miraculous things, that was an entree into an incredible friendship that I developed with that woman. I became a part of that young women's group that became so instrumental in my life and so important in my life. My two children were born in Birmingham. These women, many of us had small children. We prayed together, we laughed together, we had a wonderful time. 
I left and moved to Galveston. And it was a very traditional group of women, older. Most of them could have been my grandmothers. I was one of the youngest ones in the block, and they all invited me to be a daughter of the king. But you had one of the unspoken criteria for being a daughter of the king was that you had to be at least 80 years old. <laughs> and I gently said, no, thank you. You know, I don't think I want to do this. <clears throat> but this was a group that I learned much from. I learned about organization. I learned about expectation. I learned a lot of things, and it was good for me. But I was lonely. I was really lonely. And I remember sitting at my kitchen table crying, just weeping, Lord, please. I need, I just need some fellowship with women that I can really relate to. <clears throat> the telephone rang one day, and it was a woman who was on the board of the ECW of the Diocese of Texas. And she said, Mary, um, I'm calling to tell you that you've been nominated to be treasurer of the Diocese <laughs> Texas uh, of the women. And I thought to myself, I can't even balance my checkbook. What are they doing calling me, you know? And I remember saying, uh, is there any other thing that you might want a person to do because I might be interested? God is so good. I had literally met one woman, literally one woman who had a connection and somehow there was a spark. And my, of course, I was about the fifth person they called to be treasure the diocese, Texas. <laughs> but God was working through that phone call big time because what happened was I became a member of one of the most incredible group of women over the course of nine years I have ever had the privilege of being a part of. Women who mentored me, who loved me. We cried together. We planned to, together. We did outrageous things together. We had dreams and goals that we met. It was the most exciting, fulfilling time and growing time for me as a woman, and I came to cherish my relationships with women. And I knew that I needed them, and they needed me, and that God meant for us to be together. It was out of that that my leadership skills were developed big time. I, ended up, I did lots of things on that board. I ended up <clears throat> being president and we did big things. <laughs> we shot for the stars and we accomplished them. We even ended up with Barbara Bush as a keynote speaker. That was my Cinderella, Cinderella moment, Cinderella moment. Just really, really pushed me, pushed me, pushed me as a leader in my formation. And I look back now and I see how God was just shaping me and forming me building my courage. I'm going to talk about fear because I had a lot of fear in this, a lot of fear later when we talk about a session on fear. To get me to this place where I am today, I'm passionate about you. I'm passionate about each other. God calls us to be together. New things are happening. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? Isaiah. God is always creating a new thing. We get stuck in that pew. And we get comfortable. We don't want to change. And with those new things comes wonderful, wonderful things that spring forth. Do we have the eyes to see it? Do we have the courage to go there? That's what we've got to ask ourselves. Are we willing to do things in new ways as women? 
to recognize what's going on, to really think about these things, pray about these things together and move forward. I'm going to move into a session where I talk about the different values of living generations in America because I think it profoundly impacts us as women and it profoundly impacts us as women in community in the church. If you will open to the next handout in your folder, at the top of it, it should look like this. The values of living American generations. Let's talk about these things. I'm going to move into my teaching mode, so um, just bear with me. But I want you to think about this and how you recognize these changes too. About five years, no, it was 1995. We had a new bishop in Texas, and he wanted to change things radically. He said, we've got to move into mission, we've got to get out of maintenance, and we've got to do things. So he called together what we all called the Great Episcopal Revival, and we have 1,500 of us gather under a tent in Houston. Now the tent was air-conditioned. In June, in June for three days. Now in good Episcopal Revival fashion, we had lots of speakers and workshops and that sort of thing. Didn't have too many people jumping up and down with the floppy Bible. But one of the speakers was a woman by the name of Carol Childress. And Carol Childress has an expertise in demographics and sociological research. And she works with churches all across the nation. And she, over the course of three days, gave us two and a half hours of teaching about the values of living generations. And she touched a little bit about how that's going to impact the church. But she left a lot of the information with us for us to decide how does that impact us as a, as a community of Christ. I sat there and listened to her and went, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. This explains a lot of things. So because of that, I want to share it with you. Now, I need to tell you, these are broad brush stroke trends, okay? Many of you in this room will say, well, I don't fit that, or I don't think that, you know, necessarily reflects my life. We are all unique. I want to recognize that. But do know that what I'm going to teach you have been recognized as sociological trends of the five living generations in America. So I'm going to go through these. The first two generations are the silent and the builder generations, and they were the oldest among us born before 1945. How many of you in this room were born before 1945? <laughs> Raise your hand. Just, we've got three of you. Let's look at these generations. These generations, their lives were significantly shaped by the Great Depression. In many, many ways, their families were affected. America was affected. And it shaped much of their thinking. They suffered through World War II. They knew what it meant to give up for the greater good, for the greater good, for the cause. Give up that sugar. Give up those nylons. We got to win this war, and it's talking survival. This is a critical thing that we do now that really shaped them in terms of their patriotism and their commitment to a cause. They learned to live on very little, and in some situations, life was just survival. I like to tell this story. My mother was the daughter of a great preacher, and the great preacher happened to be her mother. My grandmother was an evangelist, and the great line of preachers coming out of the William Booth tradition of the Salvation Army. William Booth had daughters, and all his daughters became preachers, and all their daughters became preachers. So my grandmother was a preacher. And my grandfather was the organist. 
And they traveled the country and did revivals, but they were honest. <laughs> you often hear these things. Well, these two were loved the Lord with all their heart and sometimes didn't have very much. During the Depression, they lost their home. And they had relatives in New York City. So they moved to New York City to live with relatives because they were literally homeless. And my mother, who's now 82, has this very strong memory of sitting on a park bench in Central Park. And she had four siblings. She was the oldest. Remembering her mother passing out bananas to the family, all the children saying, children, God's going to take care of us. We're going to be fine. Mother had that vivid memory of being homeless for a little while and at times not having very much. Life was just survival. So what was her reaction? It was a pendulum swing. When we were little kids, there were four of us. We used to sit down at a dinner table where we had 18 pork chops for six people. <laughs> we all ended up with weight problems, every single one of us. But mother was determined that we would not go without like she had had to go without. So it profoundly affected her behavior. Material things are true luxuries. This, these are generations where you had one bathroom in your house, you had one car, you had one radio. You know, you just, these are luxuries. Really talented at making do. And you made do with what you had. You didn't have to go out and buy a lot of stuff. You just made do what you had. Now, these generations were at some of the best recyclers in the world. I remember going in the pantry of my grandmother where she had paper bags stacked to the ceiling and string and balls and glass jars. She was born in 1890. And this was the way you live. You don't throw away things. Oh, you know, it would give her heart failure today to throw out a television. I mean, it just was not in her psyche to... Waste. Every penny counted debt was to be avoided. Bless my father's precious heart. He lived to be 77. He did not have his first credit card until he was 68 years old because he wasn't ever going to be in debt. Now just imagine how this affected the 31 years at that church that he was rector of. Now my dad went in 1950 and it was a church that was a, a church, had a pretty good sized little nave tiny little office, no build, no program building, no other buildings in the heart of Houston in a neighborhood, a res primarily residential neighborhood. My dad spent 31 years and we often used to joke that he stayed there that long because he would buy one house at a time behind the, behind the church until he got almost the entire block. And it took him 31 years to do that because he would never let that church go in debt. They would raise just enough money to pay for one little parcel of property. And literally at his retirement party, they burned the mortgage on the parking lot that they had just built two years before. He wasn't going to let them be in debt. It profoundly affected the way they lived together in community. Men provided women stayed at home to raise children. Was there any question that if you could afford it, this is what you did? This is the way you're supposed to do things as women. Women were the primary volunteers in churches. All right, let's look at this. These were women who they were not allowed to be behind the lectern. They were not allowed to even be little acolytes, you know. What they could do was volunteer, and they were good. They could also have their women's organizations, and they were good. Because in that women's organization, their leadership development could be created. It could be affirmed. They did things and did them well. 
They were the primary volunteers. They held the church together. Divorce was not socially acceptable. I remember when I was a little girl, my two best friends were single children of divorced mothers, which was really unusual in the 50s. Neither one of my friends ever, ever, ever admitted out loud, like in talking with a group of people, that they didn't have a daddy at home. It just wasn't something that was socially acceptable for us in America. Extremely loyal to institutions, government, the church, social clubs, and organizations, this was the heyday of Junior Leagues, Kiwanis, Masons, you name it, civic organizations just sprung up in America, all sorts of opportunities, fraternal organizations for the 50 years, 1900 to 1960 or so, just a tremendous explosion of these kinds of, of groups and people were very loyal to them. Episcopalians were loyal to their denomination. They might have had a falling out with their rector, maybe didn't go to church for a while, but they, they'd sooner die than be buried a Presbyterian. They were gonna be buried out of the church, out of the Episcopal church, because that's, that was their loyalty. Now, I'm not saying some people didn't change, of course some people did, but the trends were extreme loyalty to institutions. Life is work, family gatherings, very important. Pace of life was moderate, work and family were highest values. Moderated, moderated pace of life. Much different than what we experience today. All right, let's move to the baby boomer generation born between 1945 and 1964. How many in this room are in that generation? The vast majority of you, I knew that was true. Do you know that one in every three Americans were born in this generation? Does it surprise you that most of you in this room come from my generation? This is my generation. We are the largest group in America. One in three of us are 80 million of us. That's why they're really worried about us retiring. It's, it's going to impact stock market. It'll impact all sorts of things. We grew up in the 50s, a time of all new opportunities. Think of technology. Think of the technological explosion in the 50s and the 60s. This was a time when people began to have their first single home. Just rampant across America, people began to have their own homes. They had all sorts of things they could buy. Uh, it was a time post-war time with great opportunities, an exciting time. This is a group that as we grew older, we wanted to reshape things because we began to see things going on in America that we knew were not right. We're a very idealistic group. Vietnam affected our trust in the government and other institutions. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was, the two years I was at the University of Texas, there were protests almost every day. I was there between 1967 and 1969. It was a time when there was a rampant feeling in our generation that this war is not right. This war is not right. Something's not right here. And we're not getting the story. We hear that things are all right, but the media is showing us our friends coming back in body bags. But yet we are not at war. We're in some kind of conflict. We knew, we, we began to really lose this trust and then we lost that war. We really lost the war. And the trust just kind of went away in terms of the government. It's also the time of great civil rights movement. Now my dad was a northerner, had lived in Massachusetts and moved to Texas from New York. And when I was a little girl, and there were water fountains in Houston marked white, colored, 
I learned from the time of being a little girl that this was wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. And so I grew up knowing that was wrong. And we, that affected so much of what we did. We wanted to change these things that we knew were not right. We desired those social changes. A time of expansion of great civil rights and personal rights. I don't know about you, but if you went to school, I bet there were a few people smoking pot if you were a boomer around you. Of course, it's kind of normal today, but back then it got to the point where if I want to do this, why, is, why does it bother you? This is my right to do this. You know, as long as I'm not in your face, if I choose to do something, that, that whole business of situational ethics, if I choose to do it and I don't bother somebody else, What's your problem with my behavior? Now, this is something that our parents knew was not right, but our generation took it on wholesale. First generation to send women to college in large numbers. Many of us were the first women in our family to go to college. First generation had two income households, which was a direct result of going to college. <laughs> We had all these women had these degrees, and it's like, oh my gosh, my parents sacrificed. I know I'm one of the first to have a college education. I gotta go out and spread my wings. Besides, we had Gloria Steinem on TV. And Gloria Steinem would say, you can have it all. You can be a sexy, wonderful wife, and you can be a president of a corporation. Well, that was hogwash. It was hogwash, but we had to try Now, uh, it's not that we can't do these things, but somewhere we lose. Something gets lost in this equation. We had come a long way, baby, but we were paying a price because we were out there and we were some of the first to be out there and it was hard. It was hard to figure this out. Women's leadership development for the first time ever was in companies in the private sector. All right, now just think about this for a minute. We had things women did in churches, okay? And we had these women out here in our generation who were experiencing leadership, getting a nice size paycheck, you know? And, and all of a sudden, the demands on our life are just beginning to be huge. And we really didn't need the church in ways that our mothers and grandmothers might have needed the church to be for us. Church denominational allegiance loss. I am a living example of this in my generation. There were four, four brothers and sisters in my family. I told you I was eighth, eighth generation. I'm the only Episcopalian left. I have a sister, the one in Morgantown. I uh, very affectionately call her the denominational flavor of the month. She has been a Presbyterian, and she's been a Methodist, and she's been an Episcopalian, and she kind of flips and flops, but she and her husband, he's a professor at University of West Virginia, they've moved around the country. They have three children. Everywhere they moved, they went to the church that had the best, best youth program because her priority was not so much a denomination as it was her children. So they were going to find a church that had a great youth program. I have a sister who lives in Australia, and she's lived there for 20 years, and she, she's been a Quaker. She's been uh, dabbled in Roman Catholicism, and now she's part of what's called the Unity Church in Australia, which is a lot of the mainline denominations came together in Australia a long time ago. 
But what makes me, I mean, I still think there's hope for her because she every once in a while goes to this Anglican church. It's like there's, you know, maybe she'll come back. And then I have a brother who will say to you, I don't go to church because I've been in 12-step programs for 15 years and the fellowship and what I learn about myself and my relationship with God has grown so significantly because of my 12-step church that there's no church that can be as honest as my 12-step group. Now, this isn't pretty typical of our generation. But when the four of us together, they always look at me and say, you're making up for us. <laughs> okay, and I think I probably am. No longer have to be a church member to have respect in the community to be a good person. It's a scary scenario when political consultants are telling people who are running for political office, do not put your church affiliation on your vita because that's a negative. And that's exactly what they're telling them. This generation, that'd be the first thing they do, that they were the senior warden at Christ the Savior Episcopal Church, which had a lot of prestige in the community. This one, you don't even mention it. Because of what's happening in America and the diminishing respect that the church has, and people don't want to think that you're going to be biased or even a Christian as far as that's concerned, if you're going to hold political office. Big change. Want to commune with God in the garden and on the golf course. We were the first generation that said, eh, church once in a while, that's fine. I commune with God on the golf course. Now, I, you know, I'd like to say to these people, Christ really intended for us to come together in community because it is in community that he called us to worship. Now, we can worship out there, but we are called to be in community, and that is really a mandate from Christ to do that. <clears throat> Moral rule breakdown, do what you want to do, just don't hurt someone else doing it. Situational ethics, which I mentioned before. Loss of caring for society. Lawyers, lawsuits, rule. This generation, lawsuits, lawsuits. Not too many lawsuits. You didn't hear about it all the time. This one, tell me you haven't had a fender bender and the first thing you think of is, am I hurt? And the second thing you think of is, oh my Lord, I'm going to be sued. It is so prevalent and so pervasive in our society because once again, we're going after these personal rights. I deserve it. I deserve it. It's not a matter of working something out and something that's fair. It's more this. I have the right to sue you and get all the money I can get out of you. Next page. Now, are there some of you, I sure hope there's some of you in this room who are baby busters. You were born between 1964 and 1978. Raise your hand. Yay, we got a few of you. We got a few of you. Now look at your numbers. You're the smallest generation in America. Do you know that? There are only 41 million of you in all of America. That's why there aren't a whole lot of you in the room, not to mention we kind of, we lost you guys to the church. Glad you all are here. That's why it's called baby busters. The numbers were busted in this generation because there were so many of us and so few of you. Now, why were there so few of you? Well, we all had birth control. <laughs> we were the first generation boomers had birth control. We also went through this thing where we said, you know, it's not responsible to have more than two children. You know, you, you replace yourself kind of stuff. Like that, we were working outside the home and we couldn't handle more than two kids. So the numbers are truly busted. Entertainment Central, ease with technology. Now, this is a generation. Oh, I want to say the symbol of a boomer generation. Let me tell you. This is a day planner. Now, <laughs> look how fat it is. This is my right arm. My life is in this. Airplane tickets, phone numbers, everybody's address, all my plans for every day. 
When I went to get training, I mean, I'm so crazy that not only did I pay for this expensive thing, I paid $100 to go get training to learn how to use it. <laughs> I really dumb. But I remember in the training, the guy said, now you want to take this everywhere you go. You don't ever want to lose sight of it. It needs to always be under your arm and even taken into the bathroom that you want to exchange business cards with. <laughs> Pretty bad. Okay, so that's it. Now, some of us are learning how to use Palm Pilots, but some of us are just like, mm -hmm, not going there. The symbol of the baby buster generation is this. You all had these before we ever got them. Uh, and, and then we had to figure out how to use the, you know, all the numbers and all the doodads that go with this. I still haven't figured out everything my cell phone can do. But you had a much greater ease with technology. It just came easier to you. You are a generation known as the entitled generation. Well, I deserve it. I got my education. I, I deserve a good job. You know, I ought to be able to go out and get this high management position coming out of college because I've worked hard. Now, generation before us were going, are we worthy? Can we do it? Would they accept a woman? And the generation before us are not even going there, you know? You all feel entitled, feeling loved and accepted is the highest priority. Why? Because 50% of this generation in America come from broken homes and blended families. Whoa. Wow. This is a generation that grew up knowing pain that a lot of us and our mothers didn't experience quite the same way. A lot of brokenness in those families, and so there's a search for that love. Emotional pain has been central to their lives. They understand it. Search for intimacy is a driving force in their lives. Looking, looking, looking for that intimacy in my life. They want personal, relational connectedness to organizations they commit to participate in. Oh my goodness. Here we have Episcopal churches who are doing really good to say hello when you walk in the door if you're a stranger. And we wonder why people don't come and join us. And this is a group that's saying, look, I'm looking to connect. I'm hurting and I've got these needs. And, and you know, is the church going to be there for you? Are women in churches going to see women coming in the door and realize that to have the courage to walk in a church door in America today takes tremendous courage. There are only 39% of Americans are affiliated with churches. Now, that's a scary proposition. That means that two-thirds of America are not even, don't even want to be connected. Are we in a minority? This is like early Christianity. Do we even realize what's going on around us? So if a woman or a man has the courage to walk into a church, we better be there for them. We better be ready to connect with them and to relate to them and to care about them and why they got there in the first place, why they are coming. Fear of the future dominates families, age, jobs, etc. This is the generation that knows no gold watches. We were the first generation to experience being laid off for, in mass. You know, it's real. A lot of us, my husband got laid off for the first time a year and a half ago and was unemployed for five months, and that was a scary proposition. He's got his doctorate. He's a really smart man. They had a downsizing at his company. You know, God is good. He's got a good job now, but it took a while. A lot of us have been through this. It's a normal thing. Uh, we are accustomed to this in America. It's scary. That isn't the way it used to be for our parents. There was a lot more loyalty in the corporate world than there is today. This is a first generation that was highly impacted with AIDS. Many of us were already uh, married or well into our lives. 
This came into their sexuality as young adults being slammed with AIDS. Scary, scary proposition that if you have sex, you could die. You know, we didn't. We didn't have that fear. We didn't have that experience. So in many ways, the future is in small chunks that you can handle. You know, we can plan ahead for a couple years, and that's about as far ahead as we want because we don't know what's going to happen. And we were a generation that, you know, you plan, <laughs> and you think it's all going to come together and work out. Now, this generation thinks a little differently. Family defined as those who love them, being a part of a community which is open, safe, and inclusive is extremely important to them. It may not be your blood relatives, but it's the people who love you that you really care about. This speaks directly to the church. It speaks direct, it goes right back to what Christ called us to do. All these things, all these things over here, we are called to do, and yet we hold back, we hold back as a church from exposing ourselves, being vulnerable and loving. <clears throat> uh, but this is a generation that is looking for that. Um, that will accept me for who I am. Now, interesting enough, this is a generation that lives in contradiction. They believe in pro-choice, but, but pro-life for whales, animals, and trees. Now, something's not right with this picture. <laughs> a little confusion. Just a little confusion. Uh, interesting because in our society, you know, you can, you can mix it all up. And if you don't have that guiding force of a belief system... You're a mess in America. It's kind of hard to figure out what it is that, that's truth, if there is truth, to them. Most spiritual generation, Christianity, New Age, or cults. Okay, this is a question for us. This has been defined as the most spiritual generation to have ever lived in America, ever. They are searching, searching, searching. 15 years ago, when they were young adults, you know, all of a sudden we're talking about crystals and all this stuff. Where'd this come from? It came from this sense of searching, searching. They're searching, really searching, and where's the church? Where's the church in this? If parents, they desire academic, physical development to take precedence over spiritual development for their kids, yet they yearn for moral boundaries. Oh, my goodness. You know, they want their kids to be raised in a moral way, but yet if there's a soccer game on Sunday morning, the soccer game probably wins because the coaches said, if you miss a game, you're off the team. You know, we're dealing with cultural values here that are in conflict with our Christianity. And many, many in this generation have opted out to take the cultural expectation versus our uh, religious and spiritual God's expectation of us. Church must be welcoming a relationship building and loving community to draw them in. Sometimes conversion comes later and if they come with 14 earrings hanging from their ear and have purple hair, you've got to know that they're looking really hard and they're making themselves really vulnerable. And are we going to sit there and go, oh my gosh, did you see that person with purple hair <laughs> who came in our church? I mean, it's, are, we, are we in tune with what's going on? here. Work, supports, play, lifestyle, entertainment. You know, there's much more because of the technology and all the things that we have. Um, this is a group that often earns money so they can go play. I'll never forget on one of my many trips, I, I was sitting on one of those parking vans that takes you to the airport, and there was a guy sitting across from me, and he had a fishing pole, and he had a bag, and he looked like he was obviously going on vacation. And we just struck up a conversation. Now, this was Houston, Texas. And it was a Friday. And he said, I'm flying to Canada to fish for the weekend. I said, oh, you're flying to Canada to fish for the weekend. You know, 
My generation would never think of flying to Canada from Texas to fish for the weekend. But this guy earns his money so he can go off and do these wonderful things. Go off and do these wonderful things. Last generation, they've been called many things. <laughs> these are a couple of them. Millennials, uh, Y generation, born after 1978. I don't think there's anybody in this Is there anybody in this room? No, there rarely is. Uh, there's 64 million. Many of our children are in this generation. 64 million of them. This is the first post-Cold War generation that don't know war. And I need to tell you, I have two sons, one that just got out of the U.S. Army and one who's still in. My only two children. Now, this is a mother who in the 60s was very upset about the Vietnam War. And here are these two sons who are dawdling around after high school and go, I don't want to go to college yet. I'm just going to join the service. Well, you know, they didn't, they didn't know war. Didn't have a clue what war was. You know, and here are two parents going, you don't know what you're getting into. And they go, you know, I might as well be doing something with my life. Now, I was glad they wanted to do something with their life, but it made me very nervous. They didn't have a clue what it meant to be at war. Parented by others slash key daycare. Kids is the norm. This is the norm of these kids. Most of them had child care somewhere <laughs> when they were little or they were, you know, early on uh, in those situations. Large economic differences between rich and poor. In America, we have this huge void. Have you ever driven by a high school that has late model cars all in the parking lot? I don't know about where you live, and I don't think it's just a Texas phenomenon, but you can drive by many high school parking lots and find a lot newer cars in the car I'm driving. And these kids have been given a lot. Most of them have jobs. They're paying for their insurance or whatever, but for 101 reasons, there's a lot of wealth and material things with this generation. At the same time, we have a group in America of this generation who are very, very poor. Now that sets them up to be at anger and at risk, big time. High tech and connected. My youngest son is now 22, but he was born with a computer mouse in his hand. Literally, he is a computer techie and uh, going into computer science and all that stuff. Now, when he was 11 years old, I was just, I was doing a lot of presentations, a lot of writing, and my husband was saying, you've got to learn how to use a computer. This was quite a while ago, about 11, 12 years ago. And so finally, I, you know, got over my fear and I sat down at the computer and I would kind of figure things out and then I get stuck. And I, I remember one time saying, Scott, will you please come and help me? figured this out on the computer, and he said, Mom, I've told you how to do that three times. Now, that was my 11-year-old, you know. He just had a sense of this that, you know, it was easy. He didn't understand what my problem was. Accustomed to comfort, casual, as I am, desire it in church. Boy, this is a generation that they are certainly not dressing up for church anymore. <laughs> is this an understatement? All right. And if you don't like it, well, that's your problem. You know, you're not being a Christian. You need to accept me. We now, I just, I think, and I keep these things in mind all the time. I have to. I do. Because it helps a whole lot. And we have a new contemporary service at our church. And here's the, the worship leader up there in front of everybody. And his shirt tail's hanging out the hair. He look, he has the sandals on and his hair and a ponytail. And I thought, you know, you're standing up there in front of all these people. Can't you at least tuck your shirt in? Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. The di disillusioned generation, very open to spirituality. Whoa, this is a scary, scary deal. The whole business that happened in Colorado, remember with the, the massacre that happened there with the kids. This, this generation, if you sit them down, they'll talk about how disillusioned they are. 
You know, you know, a lot of it has to do with the fact they have a lot of material wealth. They've seen all this. They have all this technology, all sorts of things, and it's not enough. And they don't know about the void that isn't filled because they don't have that relationship with Christ, and they don't know how to fill it. Very disillusioned. Clusters generation is the ones who date in groups. Uh, relationships are so important to them. You know, we used to go out and you had a date and you sat in a car and you had one boy and, you know, this is a group and there are 10 of them go out together and they go to the mall and, you know, that's cool. It's just different. Um, anger and violence cause them to be at risk big time. Uh, when they're doing metal detectors at high schools all over America, something's not right here. Something's not right. And the huge gulf between their grandparents themselves and our understanding of the world and its values. But the good news is that the grandparents can usually unconditionally love them like their parents can't. You know, I mean, the parents do, but the parents are always, you know, judging them and trying to help them and control them. <laughs> and uh, the grandparents have a little more understanding, even though very different. And finally, life is play. Work is forced. Entertainment is central. And if we're not doing... If we're not going to school, we're going to the movies, or we're doing something that fun. You know, work, chores, you know, that's something we don't talk about. All right, now that was a big mouthful I just gave you all. And I did tell you that, uh, you know, remember these are trends, and you may not feel like you fit in one of these generations or the other, but I want you to look at the next sheet, and I want you to do a little work. And we'll take a break after we do this exercise. I want you to think about the generations. Do you fit in one of them? Maybe you think, maybe your values are more like in a, one of the other generations. Whatever it may be, whether it be your chronological year or the way you feel inside. Is there a generation that kind of resonates with you uh, and your values? Then I want you to describe at least one characteristic or a value that I just taught you about that rings true. Yeah, that rings true. And I want you to write a sentence or two about a situation where that's demonstrated. And third, if knowing these values or characteristics help you understand some people a little bit better, I want you to think about how can you as an individual better demonstrate Christ's love to someone? How? If, you have, if your awareness has been raised just a little bit, just think of an action, something you can do to demonstrate that love. Let's just take about five minutes to do that right now. Okay. Why don't we stop? You're going to have time to talk about this. But before you do, I want you to stand up. Let's take a stretch. Everybody stand up. And let's just stretch. We've been in here a little over an hour and a half. And I promise you after our next little time together, we'll have a 15-minute break. Okay, just stretch. Now, since I have you already up, I want you to move. <laughs> take your folder with you and just change places somewhere. Move to another seat. It's hard, isn't it? Just do it. You don't have to move far, just move. Now, isn't it interesting that in the move, that, I mean, there's a little bit of pain and discomfort in that, but you made a good time of it. You enjoyed meeting each other and visiting, so good things come of change. Good things come of change. I want you to spend... I'm going to tell you 10 minutes, but I know once you get into this, it's going to take about 15 because you really get talking about it. I want you to turn to a person sitting next to you, hopefully someone you haven't talked to before. And if it is someone you talk to, talk to someone new and share your experiences uh, that you just wrote about. 
All right, allow and listen to each other to talk about those generational characteristics uh, that you notice. I want you to share how you think there are a few things you can do to maybe love and accept some people that you maybe have had a hard time because maybe you didn't understand some things and maybe you see those things more clearly now. And if you still have time to talk, uh, that bottom question says, if there are, let's see, am I, I've got the wrong hand out here. Let me check it. Something about um, how this in, generational differences impact your church. How, think about it. How does this impact my congregation and the leaders of my congregation's expectations, programs, if there are, is a women's organization? Has this impacted us? And how has it impacted us? Okay, so first share your personal stuff each, and then when you're both finished sharing the personal stuff, then get in a little conversation about how you think it might be affecting your churches, okay? So let's do this now for about 11 or 12 minutes, and I'll call time. Okay, let's be wrapping up our conversations. Okay. You all seem to uh, have a lot of things to talk about. <laughs> I want to spend a few minutes talking about some of your insights, reflections, and I want you to share with the whole group uh, some of your thoughts. Now, remember, this is being recorded, so I will... Re <laughs> no, I, I, I trust you. Uh, I will be repeating a lot of what you say, so that's why I'm repeating it. Remember that. Uh, and then after we finish this, we will uh, take a break. Someone want to share with us an insight that they might have had? from all of this information? No insights. <laughs> all right, here we go. Karen. I led the women's Bible study at my church when the ETW was still meeting. And it was older women, older, older. Speak up. Older women, and the ECW was still meeting uh, actually on the same day of the week. And there was, I'll, I'll never forget the day when the woman who was the head of the altar guild just exploded in frustration at me. Why don't you ever do anything? She just could not understand how we could just sit around and read the Bible and share and pray for each other because she was this generation that life was work and their involvement in church was gills and, and producing things. So. Thank you, Karen. And if I get the microphone to you, I will. That way I can avoid it. Great. Thank you. Who else had an insight? I have uh, children, adult children and um, teenage children, and, and they, no matter what the consequences are, spend everything that they have in order to get the satisfaction of the concert or going to the Steeler game or whatever it is, and, and they worry about the consequences, maybe not ever. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, because <laughs> we're Thank the bailout. <laughs> Thank you. Who else? Yeah. Why don't you get up? Just stand up. And I'll repeat a little bit what you said. Um, I think when you talked about 39% of the people are affiliated, I knew it was little, but I didn't realize it was that little, and talked about the courage and when you put someone walking into our church and you use the word courage, it changed that whole concept for me. Um, I'm someone 
my job is to be in front of people and use that energy to be on and convincing and, and all of that. And so when I go to my church, I want just to relax and not be on. And our pastor always would admonish us to move around. Oh, I don't have the energy. But when you said the courage, well, then all that all of a sudden brought out in me, I want to try to relieve that. I never thought of it as courage. So that was a wonderful insight for me to go beyond myself to relieve someone's stress of that new feeling and the fear that goes with walking into a church. Thank you. So she spoke to the courage it takes for someone, and that was a realization of someone walking into a church for the first time, uh, that, that some of us have a hard time realizing how hard it is to do in our, in our society. Thank you. Who else? I'm an MDiv student here at Trinity, and um, I realize after looking at this how important it is to understand where each generation is coming from so that they feel included in everything that's going on in the life of the church and that you can't neglect any one area and that each of them are going to look at everything totally different than maybe you do. <laughs> so it's going to be very important for me to integrate this concept. Thank you, Jean. It, today, you, do you realize this is the first time in America that we've had five living generations? We used to live to be 55 and go, <laughs> or 60. Uh, that's not the case anymore. So the church is royally challenged to honor our differences. And women, we're the first to make quick judgments and not to be sensitive to these incredible differences that are sitting in the pews. I will talk a little bit more about that in some of my other presentations, but thank you, Jean, because I do think that is the work of ministry. That is what Jesus would expect us to do. It's to honor each other uh, because we, many of us are coming from very, very different places. Who else? Yes. Um, I work with um, people in their 30s, and what was really um, insightful about this is, you know, I have um, them come to me and say, we know... I believe in Jesus, but I have crystals in my car, and can we have a, a program on Zen Buddhism or on uh, Muslim, how Muslim and Christianity fits together? And my first response is, you want to what? <laughs> um, and I, I guess I realized that um, I need to be less judgmental about that, to understand what they value about that, but also so that they feel like those things on the board. Um, accepted and so forth before there's going to be any inroad to understanding between us about well who is this Jesus and what does he what does he call us to do exactly thank you Nancy I think that's really it is a fine fence we walk because you you know they're searching they wouldn't have the crystals in the car unless they were searching but yet we feel that we have a sense of the profound truth. So we have to love them first. And if loving them means listening to them and whatever, whatever that takes, it doesn't mean you have to believe what they're saying. It means listen to them, accept them where they are in their place, confusion. And then in ways that, that can demonstrate not only articulate, but demonstrate Christ to them. They're going to be changed. They're going to learn. But the church also has to provide the opportunities for the teaching and the discernment. 
but it is a fine, fine fence we walk. Thank you. Who, who else? Get over there. people making choices to play soccer on Sunday morning or sleeping in on Sunday morning as something I'm sure we've all heard about and <laughs> instead of coming to church and I'm a cradle Episcopalian but I have moved 18 times so I've gone to at least 18 different Episcopal churches in at least 10 different dioceses right and so I know that that one of the uh, ways we could target these last two generations would be Saturday night services. Mm -hmm. So if they're gonna sleep in on Sunday morning, then let's have a family-oriented Saturday night and get them there and, you know, et cetera. And I've, I know it's been a controversy in many different dioceses that I've been in because the priests are from that generation and they don't wanna work on Saturday night. It's not the day I do church, you know? So there's that, it is. and But there's this need to blend that generation because some churches that do have Saturday nights have the rock music with the incredible um, high-tech, <laughs> high church. And, and so there, how, how do you really draw that balance? That's a really good comment. And I think that um, we do have to be sensitive to these different needs. And we also need to know there are no bullet answers either. Um, and I'm a great one, and I'm going to talk more about it tomorrow about discerning God's vision for you, your church and discerning God the, for the work of ministry that you do for your un, unique circumstances. And indeed, there are churches out there, and one of the ways they've addressed it by trying to address different needs is to go into a full-blown contemporary service and not just sing 70s kumbaya music, but really, you know, we're singing Michael W. Smith and we're singing Stephen Curtis Chapman and other groups uh, that are very, very contemporary Christian music. I think it is incumbent upon all of us to be sensitive to those different needs. How that's played out in the life of the church has to be very thoughtful. And sometimes it will mean a Saturday night service. But more than anything, if your church is one of those that is attempting to move in a direction, and it can be a Sunday morning service added that's different, or a Sunday night service, or a Wednesday night, or whatever it might be. If they're moving in that direction, it is incumbent upon you to realize that this is ministering to people who may not otherwise know what it means to worship, or the traditions, our traditions that some of us value so highly, have very little meaning for them, and others would. Uh, it's very interesting when you think about what happened in the 70s. We went from, with the old 1928 prayer book, It's Me and God, very private meditation, on my knees, with God. The service was designed that way. Then we moved into a new prayer book. All of a sudden, as a community, we, the language changed to be communal language and changed to be relational isn't that interesting that we move from this? So why is it so difficult? You, can you understand why we still have many among us, uh, dear sisters, I know some who are in their 80s, who grieve, still grieve the loss of the way they used to worship because they can't quite haven't, you know, stepped to the other side. And I think it is, it's just incumbent of us not to judge that. You know, because we're really coming from very different places. But at the same time, we're looking at new generations that are going to bring changes with them.
I've often said about church music, which of course is more controversial than sex, I swear. <laughs> you know, you wanna get in a heated debate, talk about church music. But um, that church music, I thought, all right, what did they sing before 1800? You know, you know, for some reason in the hymnal, we think that these are sacrosancts, you know, and, and yet there's just a body of glorious music that's been written to worship God. And somehow we, we put ourselves in this narrow little place and don't realize that indeed this too is going to change. You know, just give it some time and it all rolls forward. Some will stay the same, but some will change. So that, that is just one of the challenges. Any other comments before? I'm going to take five minutes. We'll take a break in five minutes. I felt like I had a real insight about the millennials because um, it's easy to see them as the spoiled generation. Um, but what I realized is that this material affluence has been put upon them by their parents um, and as a way of expressing affection toward, toward them. Um, but it's not something that they've chosen. They don't even see it. And um, they also are a generation who feels the futility of materialism. So they, they know that it's empty in the end. And I think that that makes it all the more important for us to, to reach out in relationship to them. And to in relationships, they're going to find relationships, but in relationships that will point them to Christ. Beth, that's, oh my gosh, what an incredible insight, because I think that is so true. These children were born into material life. They have never known any different. No wonder they're disillusioned. So we do. We, you know, and those of us who are boomers, and certainly those of us who are silent or builders before us, we always had this out there as a goal. Achieve that bigger house. Achieve that. Achieve that. Get that, and then you'll be happy, right? No. But we were working towards those things. And here's a group that just says, this is the way life is. And of course, the reality check is take some of those kids to Africa or Mexico or, or in the inner city. And man, you talk about conflict. Look what they're looking at in terms of inner city America. Look at what they see on TV versus the reality of their lives, anger and violence and that, that just why don't I have this when everybody around me has it? And the impact that it has to take mission trips. I don't know if you all are aware, but one of the biggest movements in the church is to organize youth for significant short-term mission trips. It is critical. Why is it critical? I know we used to take kids on ski trips. Why is it critical we take them on mission trips? Because they are exposed to a world they have never known. Take them to the Navajo land. Talk about an eye-opener. Take them to the inner city. Our wealthiest church in Houston, and believe me, it's wealthy. They took 75 kids for a week in Harlem. Those 75 kids all came from tremendous affluence. They came and they bust. They did not fly from Houston to New York City to be part of the experience. And they came home changed because they saw a world and they were doing volunteer work and homeless shelters and all this stuff for a week that they had never known. We are called as a church to, to raise up our children and to be sensitive to the tremendous abundance 
and blessings that have been bestowed upon us. We are called to be good stewards. We're called to be good stewards of our children. We're called to be good stewards of each other. And all those many, many things that God has poured out on us. Thank you all for your insights and your comments. I hope you had a good time talking about that. I do hope. And the reason why I do this, you may say, this isn't what I came for. Uh, I thought we were going to talk about women's ministries. I think this is a foundational piece. I think we've got to be aware of where we are. What has brought us to this place? Why do we have problems? Why are there no single bullets that are the answers? There aren't. But there are some things we will talk about. And again, I want to reiterate that today we're emphasizing more on us as individuals. We'll move a little bit more <clears throat> into corporate life this afternoon. But tomorrow it's about being in community. Let's take a 15-minute break. The restrooms are back here. And I'll see you all back at 11.15. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of TSMcast. Recorded and produced by Trinity School for Ministry an evangelical seminary in the Anglican tradition based in Ambridge, Pennsylvania since 1976. Trinity has produced more than 2,000 alumni to plant, grow, and renew churches around the world that make disciples for Jesus Christ. If this episode has helped to deepen your knowledge of the scriptures or strengthen your walk with the Lord, we hope that you'll spread the word and share this publication with others. Also, be sure to visit us online at tsm.edu or you can explore admissions opportunities, sign up for our e-newsletter, read articles from our Seed and Harvest magazine, or make an online gift to our Trinity Fund in support of student and faculty excellence. Until our next episode, may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ fill your hearts and lives with joy. Thanks again from all of us at Trinity School for Ministry, and God bless.